So as you came in, you may have noticed this morning that we are focused on, click, this big question from grounded in our text of 1 Kings 18 this morning, how do we know that the Lord is God and there is no other that we should follow? And before we dive into that, if you'll permit me, I want to, I want to float, I guess, a supporting idea, an outrigger idea, if you like, that keeps the canoe afloat. And that's this idea that we looked at two weeks ago in the intro to our, our, our gathering. The idea that as Christians, we read the Bible with messianic expectation. Alastair Begg puts it this way, we find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. In Acts, he is preached. In the Epistles, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. Or in the words of the 1689 London Baptist Confession, this covenant is revealed in the Gospels, first of all to Adam in the promise of salvation by the seed of the woman, and afterwards by father steps until the full discovery thereof was completed in the New Testament. So as we come to 1 Kings 18 and this big question this morning, how do we know the Lord is God and there is none other that we should follow? We want to ask ourselves, how is this theme developed in Scripture? Where have we seen it before? Um, How is this fulfilled in Jesus? And specifically, what does that mean for the way we understand and apply this text to ourselves? So let me ask you, without any hints, (laughs) where have we seen this idea of a great showdown that declares the Lord alone is God. Where, where have we seen that? Don't be shy. <laughs> the Exodus, right? <laughs> These are the words that God spoke to Moses as he was commanded to go and um, speak to the Israelites. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you from under the burden of the Egyptians. I'll bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And of course, God is merciful. He did what he promised. Uh, We have this. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. And the water of the Nile turned to blood. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs disappeared. That you may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 9, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Chapter 9 again, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And on and on and on and on it goes. So that you will know. And God brings them out. He does what he promised. And they, they, are, they, they, tra- they, they pass through the, the, uh, the Red Sea. And what happens? They forget. <laughs> they forget. And 40 years they travel in the wilderness. And uh, at the end of that, that, that I, I trust, devastating time, Moses 
says this to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And even though at the end of Deuteronomy, this promise has not yet been fulfilled, we fast forward 400 years later to another showdown between a prophet of the Lord and so-called gods. The showdown at Canaan, at, uh, at Carmel. <laughs> so, if I can juggle my left and my right hands. So we have uh, Israel in the northern kingdom and Judah in the southern kingdom. And we saw last week their capital, Samaria and Jerusalem, respectively. And this week, we're focusing on Carmel, Mount Carmel, which is to the north. You can see almost at the border of Phoenicia, uh, Sidon, the territory that Jezebel comes from. So this is zoomed in a bit, Mount Carmel there. And you can see in the photo on the left, Mount Carmel's still around. <laughs> That's a view up from the Valley of Jezreel, up onto the mountain. It's a ex- pretty extensive mountain range. And we don't exactly know where on the mountain this happened. It might not have even actually happened at the top. There's sort of idea in the text that, that, um, uh, that Elijah climbs up. This is one area that's kind of proposed, an amphitheater-like kind of spot near the bottom, but who knows. We still have Canaanite altars on the top of Mount Carmel, all over, all over the places, the high places. You'll hear about those in the text this morning. Obviously not the one in this text, because it was destroyed. <laughs> and you can see in various spots, uh, this is uh, looking down from Mount Carmel over, well, it's the port of Haifa, didn't exist back then, across to the Mediterranean Sea where Elijah would have seen the storm clouds rolling in. And this is the Kishon River, which will again be mentioned in the text. Here it's in flood, although probably looked a little bit more like this. It's a seasonal kind of creek. In the summer it's dry, in the winter um, it is full of water. And after three and a half years of drought probably a dust bowl. The Valley of Jezreel that Elijah runs through, prone to flooding, by the way, in the Kishon River, and we perhaps expect that's going to happen when the Lord opens the heavens and the rains fall. And finally, Jezreel. There's actually not much of it left. This is where Naboth's vineyard might have been. And Anyway, setting the scene, these are the places that are mentioned in the text. But the question is, how do we know that the Lord is God and there is no other we should follow. Lord willing, the scene is set. Rex is going to come and read for us. How about I pray? And then, come on up, <laughs> and, we, and we'll read together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, that in it you speak and you reveal that you alone are God. There is none like you, none other that should be followed. We pray that we would hear your voice clearly this morning. Would you drive away any distractions? Would your spirit till the soil of our hearts would receive your word and would it grow to produce fruit as you intended it? We ask you to speak clearly this morning, Jesus. Amen. 1 Kings 18. All right, so our Bible reading is from 1 Kings 18, verse 19, all the way through to the end of the chapter. So I'll just give you guys a moment to find that in your Bibles. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people, and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are four hundred and fifty men. Let two bowls be given to us, and let them choose one bowl for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl, and lay on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, It is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bowl, and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances, until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Thank you, Rex. Well, follow 
uh, is an interesting word, isn't it? Uh, when, you're, when you're a kid and you are at school and uh, you can play a game called Follow the Leader, where the leader does some actions or something and then everybody has to do the same thing that the leader does. Or if you're lining up and if you're a good child, a uh, good student, you'll line up in the line and follow the person in front of you and uh, you'll help save your teacher having a headache and perhaps a mental breakdown at some point <laughs> in their lives. But these days, you can follow someone simply by clicking a button. All you have to do is click follow and hey presto, you're a follower. Uh, I've seen plenty of daggy Christian memes about that where God has a Twitter account and the blue button with a question mark, will you follow? And so, you know, uh, we can so easily just hit follow. But the question is, when you're using social media, how do you know who to follow? How do you know that God's account on Twitter really is God? Well, well of course we know it's not God, but you know what I mean. Uh, a few years ago, there was this strange phenomenon appearing that I noticed uh, on social media where people's accounts and names started having this symbol next to their name and it was blue with a little tick next to it. I was just like, what, what does that mean? I have no idea what that is. I had a friend who uh, said at, at one point uh, on Facebook, um, fully verified on all accounts, ha ha ha, deleting all your numbers. I was just, I've, I had no idea what he meant. Uh, I still kind of don't, but at least now, uh, what I do know what he meant was that he had verified his account, and that's exactly what the blue check mark is, tick mark. If you were, didn't know, uh, that was a way, that is now the way that most people will be able to say, hey, this account is actually my account. It's not a fake one that's been set up by somebody else in a foreign land. Uh, it is actually me. It means that the, you know, when you go to Ariana Grande's Twitter account and there's 100 million followers and a blue tick, that really is her posting those, whatever it is that she says, things on there. Well, obviously, the kind of following that we're talking about this morning is of far greater consequence than simply following someone on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be. And whether the one that we follow can be verified to be the one who he claims to be is also of far greater consequence. This morning, as Braden already said, the question we want to ask ourselves as we come to the text is how do we know that the Lord is God and that there is no other that we should follow? Well, this morning, let's have our Bibles open and our heads and our hearts and minds ready to receive from the Lord's Word. As we walk through this passage, I'm going to give you three headings from which to consider the questions that the text brings up. And so the first is, for the showdown at Mount Carmel, the Lord versus Baal. The Lord versus Baal. Well, verse 19 of this passage sets the scene for us, doesn't it? Uh, 
Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah. There are 450 prophets of Baal and 400 uh, of Asherah. And it's interesting to notice here that uh, Elijah includes the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at the Lord's, at Jezebel's table. Who eat at Jezebel's table. You may have noticed that in, those, in the story, those prophets never show up. It actually is just the 450 of Baal who uh, end up coming to the showdown. Now, my own theory on this is because uh, I, I think Jezebel wears the pants in the relationship. And so when Ahab asks her and comes, oh, oh honey, do you, can you please send the 400? Uh, and she's like, no. And he's like, okay, okay, no, okay. That's my theory. It's entirely speculative, uh, but it's not entirely without warrant. Uh, and you'll see a little bit more of that next Sunday when Josh preaches on chapter 19. But anyway, the point is that Elijah throws down this challenge to King Ahab. He says, gather all your prophets and meet me on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel, as we saw just earlier, uh, was near the border of Sidon and Israel, and it makes it the, a, a suitable place for a showdown. Uh, it's incredible, isn't it, that we can still see uh, altars that were actually dedicated to the worship of Baal. Clearly, this was one of the, the high places where Baal was worshipped, and so it was, it's an appropriate place for Elijah to come uh, and to challenge these prophets. But, you know, firstly and foremostly and most importantly, this showdown is not uh, primarily about Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It is primarily about the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, versus Baal or Hadad, the false gods whom the people of Sidon worshipped and whom Jezebel and Ahab had led the people of Israel to continue to worship. So let's read from our Bibles in verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Now, most likely here, uh, all the people of Israel refers to key representatives of the people rather than the whole nation, given how many thousands of people there were. But hey, it wouldn't surprise me if God somehow made that happen. <laughs> He's done more incredible things before. And as I've said the last few weeks, uh, this isn't really a contest, is it? I mean, we've called it the showdown. I've said the Lord versus Baal. Uh, and yet we, we know the Lord is God. We, we know that He's going to win, clearly. Well, the people of Israel obviously didn't know that, did they? Elijah's rhetorical question shows that the people of Israel were doing everything but following the Lord. You know, they're limping between the Lord and Baal. And yet, as we already know, it's, it's, this is much worse than just mere indecision. Uh, it, it's, it's not the kind of you know, indecision that you have when you're, you're standing there in, at, at McDonald's and looking at the menu and thinking, uh, I don't know, what, what am I going to order? It's not that kind of indecision. You know, the narrative brings this out when we read that the prophets of Baal limped around the altar in verse 26. You notice that same language there. 
Yes, there, there were still some who were faithful to the Lord in Israel. We read about them in the previous passage, and some might have even been unsure of or, or been hesitant about King Ahab and Jezebel's blatant worship of the Baals. But it seems pretty clear from the context that by and large, Israel had turned away from the Lord. And it was this that Elijah came to settle for the people. How long will you go limping between two different options? How long will you go between these two many gods that you are believing and the true Lord of Israel? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're curious about Christianity. Maybe you've been invited along and you want to know what it is that we're on about as Christians. Well, in a nutshell, what Elijah says here in verse 21 sums it all up. If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. You can substitute the word Baal there for for any other god or religion. Buddha, Allah, Vishnu, Mother Nature humanism, or you could substitute it with any other thing that people value above everything else in life. Success, money, pleasure, family, wealth, happiness, fun, barramundi, though it's kind of strange to follow barramundi. But you get the point. If the Lord is God, if He truly is God, then follow Him. You see, Christians aren't people who are in it, who aren't in this thing. We don't get together on Sundays, we don't sing songs, we don't read our Bibles, we don't pray, because we we think, oh, hey, this is a great way to make some great friends. We're not in it because we think, you know, this, this, this religion just really makes me feel like there is something out there that, that I'm connecting to. We're not in it because we we get a sense of fulfillment or we get a sense of of satisfaction because we believe in something. We don't commit to this simply because it gives us or our kids a good moral framework to live by. No. At its most basic, at its most fundamental level, being a Christian is all about this. If the God that is revealed in the Bible, if the God that has been revealed in Jesus, if the God who is active today by His Holy Spirit truly is God, then follow Him. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If this life isn't just an accident of cosmic proportions, if we're not just a big cosmic burp that are just now existing in this endless universe... And that there really is a being, there really is a watchmaker, a divine person who is behind it all, then doesn't it make sense to follow him? This is the crux of what Elijah is calling Israel to. And actually, he's doing so in the midst of a whole lot of history that they've had with God. As we heard earlier, Israel were God's chosen nation. 
And they've gone from being Abraham's offspring to a great nation that God delivered from Egypt to a nation that God then gave, to, gave the land of Canaan to. And this isn't the first time that, they have, that they've been told that they must choose to follow. Joshua 24, 15 gives them this same charge. Choose this day whom you will follow. Joshua, in the context of this, he's he's so uh, saddened by the fact that Israel has completely abandoned the law that he's saying, well, you you, you might as well just choose choose which gods you want to worship. Go on, go for it. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And funnily enough, and sadly, in in this story, just just past this uh, passage, the Israelites respond to Joshua by saying, we will serve the Lord. And Joshua verbally slaps them across the face and says, no, you won't. Because you said it before, and every time you ended up following the other gods. And of course, Joshua was right. That's exactly what ends up happening. When Israel eventually asks for and receives a king in Saul, the rest of their kingdom's history is like a yo-yo. Up, down, up, down. Sometimes the king goes back to worshiping the Lord. Other times, most of the time, he doesn't. And the nation follows. And of course, Ahab is described in chapter 16 of 1 Kings as the king who had done more evil than any of the other kings before him. And that's why we find ourselves now here at the top of Mount Carmel with Elijah issuing a similar charge to the people. If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. What's the people's response? Silence. You know when someone asks, asks you a question and uh, you give an answer, but you know that what you don't say is actually what they hear? It's like, that, uh, it's like that age-old death trap question that girls ask guys. How do I look? You, you know, like, there's, there's no way you're getting out of that alive, no matter what you say. Well, here is one of those moments. Elijah is effectively saying to the Israelites, well, guys, how do you look before God? I mean, the Israelites, they don't even pretend to say that they want to follow God. Clearly, they were so lost that they had no answer. You see, this showdown that Elijah was setting up was all about showing the people who the true God really is and responding rightly to him. Everything that happens from here on in is all about this. Make no mistake, it's about Elijah and it's about the prophets and we'll see that in a moment, but underneath all that contest, underneath that showdown is one of even greater importance This is about the one who really rules the universe, who really answers prayer, 
who really is God and who really is the one that we should follow. This is the central question of the entire passage. So even as we work our way through other sections of it and we listen to what it's saying, we must not forget that the showdown at Mount Carmel is all about this. Who is God? Is it the Lord or is it Baal? If the Lord truly is God, then there is no other truth in existence that could have a greater impact on your life than this one. Because the reality is, you will follow who you truly think is God. And Elijah knew this. And that's why he was able to stand against a horde of enemies and be confident in what he was about to do. That brings us to our second heading. One versus the multitude. One versus the multitude. Well, as Aussies, we uh, all love a good underdog story, don't we? Samson versus a thousand Philistines with just a jaw of a donkey, a jawbone. Neo versus thousands of Agent Smiths in the final Matrix film. Kerrigan versus the government. Everybody knows every man's home is his castle. Well, this is exactly what Elijah is doing. You see it in verse 22. I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah here highlights how he is the only one left. And he uses this same phrase again in the next chapter when he's talking to God. You'll see that next week. Now we know from the passage before this that uh, Obadiah saved the lives of a hundred prophets. And you know, it would be hard to, to believe that Elijah has forgotten about this. Well, actually, he's, Elijah here is probably being a bit melodramatic. But the point is that Elijah is the only one here standing on that hill, on Mount Carmel, right now, in this moment. As we heard earlier, this has happened to God's prophets many times throughout the ages. They have often found that themselves in that situation. And regardless of whether there are other prophets around in Israel or not, Elijah is now standing on top of Mount Carmel, this high place where the Baals were worshipped, that the kings were supposed to tear down and all of Israel is represented and 450 prophets of Baal are ready there to hear what he says. He really is on his own up here. And if you took God out of the equation, well, I'd say his odds are pretty slim. Elijah certainly must have felt like it was him against the world. I, even I, only am left. Can you imagine being in that situation? 
I mean, the closest thing that most of us would have to experiencing something like that would be perhaps standing up for your faith in, uh, you know, at work or at school or, or somewhere where, you know, there's no one else who has the same beliefs. But this here is a matter of life and death. We, we already know King Ahab wants Elijah dead. If this goes south for him, it is not going to end well for him. Elijah lays down the terms of the showdown in verses 23 and 24. Two bulls for the two parties. The prophets of Baal get first dibs on which bull they want to prepare. And then they had to lay it on wood and put no fire on it. Then they'll call on Baal and Elijah will call on the Lord. And whoever sets the bull on fire is the true God. I don't know about you, but uh, if that was the contest that was put before me, I'd be like, let's, let's get the popcorn out. If, that, if this happens, that is going to be amazing. Fire from heaven? Are you kidding? But there's more to it than uh, just the pyrotechnics, isn't there? Elijah isn't just putting on a show. And surely the people understood the seriousness of what was unfolding before their eyes. Their silence before and their agreement here to the terms of, that Elijah puts forth shows that they recognize that this isn't a joke. And so it begins. Elijah lets them go first, knowing that they weren't going to be successful from the outset. And let's read the result of what happens in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Limping here just like the Israelites in their indecision and abandonment of following the Lord. And they do it for hours. Just imagine this scene. 450 prophets. That's like almost the number of students in this school. 450 prophets all crying out and asking their God to do something which just seems impossible. I mean, these days, most of us will be pretty skeptical of this contest. But obviously, in Elijah's day, there was a very real expectation that someone here was going to be proven right. Even if the prophets of Baal were, were nervous about this, even if they were thinking, oh, you know, that, we've never had that before... Surely uh, they would have had held out hope and belief that they were on the right team. Baal, after all, was, was the god of storms and rain. And so surely it wouldn't be too hard for him to send fire from heaven in answer to their prayer. Well, Elijah makes it rather clear how ridiculous it is to worship a false god. After many hours of this show, he really rubs it in, in verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocks them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, 
or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. My kids this morning said, why doesn't it say that he was going to the toilet? I said, well, he, he does say that, but just in different words, more polite words. You see what Elijah does here? Yes, he's, he's mocking them because they've been going for hours and clearly Baal doesn't exist or he is powerless to do anything because they've been just at it and nothing's happened. But look at how he's mocking them. Maybe he is musing, he says. Maybe he's sitting somewhere thinking about life and what he should do next. Maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe he's gone to the loo and he can't hear you over the sounds. Maybe he's, he's gone traveling, you know, perhaps this job of being the god of storms and fertility and needing to die and rise and needing to provide rain and stuff for all these people. Maybe it's just exhausting and, you know, he needs a break to find some inspiration to try and just keep him going. Or maybe he's just asleep and perhaps he's in such a deep sleep. Maybe he's got lots of kids and he's trained himself to just, even when people are talking to him, he just, he just keeps going. Do you see what Elijah's doing here? He's showing how Baal is no God at all, but that he is just like any other person. And that's because false gods are simply gods made in the image of men. False gods are simply gods made in our likeness. And you find this over and over again throughout history. Many ancient religions described gods as being very human-like. They got jealous of each other. They got angry. They had wars. They got married. They went on quests. They ate and drank. The stories of the gods could just as easily have been stories about people. Well, not much has changed, has it? Except the difference is, as Jason Silver put it at a conference in Sydney several years ago, we are the gods now. These days, uh, most people don't go around and say that the gods are like us. We simply say that the gods are us. Now, of course, I mean, most people aren't so pretentious as to call themselves gods. I mean, unless you're in a cult, and some would. But the issue here is ever-present. As Paul would describe it many years after Elijah, in Philippians chapter 3, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul here expresses what our idolatry is more likely to look like in our day. Living for ourselves. This morning's showdown on Mount Carmel gives us a great opportunity to reflect on something that we can easily forget. God is not just a bigger, more powerful, more special version of ourselves. He's not just 
humanity amplified. No, there is a clear distinction between God and people. Theologians through the ages have called this the creator, the create, creature-creator distinction. Yes, we are made in God's image as human beings, but no, that doesn't mean that we can treat or think about God as though He's simply the perfect father or the perfect husband or the perfect friend. He's all of those things, of course, but no image or earthly similarity could possibly fully capture who He is. And this is so important for us to grasp because if we keep thinking of the Lord as though He was more like us than He really is, then we're far more likely to end up worshipping a false version of Him. We'll end up thinking to ourselves, well, this seems good and right, what I think now, and so God must think that what I think is good and right. The Bible says God is love. I know what love is like, and so my definition of love must be the same as God's. Oh, I know that God loves justice, and, and I know what justice is, so, so God must love the same kind of justice as me. Instead of seeking to understand what God is like first, as He has revealed Himself to us in His Word and in Christ, we instead look to ourselves first and then try to fashion God in a way that makes Him look more like us than sometimes we realize. That is idolatry. That is making God in the image of man. And when we do that, we're far more likely to trust in ourselves more than we trust in God. Think about it. When was the last time you asked for God's provision? As Jesus instructed us when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Well, this is a recognition that everything comes from God. This is a recognition that, that we must depend entirely on Him for everything that we need. Well, when was the last time you actually asked God for the things that you need? Well, if you're anything like me, you probably can't remember. I'm generally a, a pretty relaxed guy, and I like to think and hope that the main reason for that is because I trust that the Lord is God, and I trust that He is sovereign over all things. But when I think about it, that trust hasn't really been tested. And often in my mind, as I play out worst-case scenarios, which I tend to do somewhat regularly, the first thing that I think in such a situation is, it isn't, it's okay, God will look after me. More often than not, the first thing I think about are all the steps that I would take or all the things that I have already put into place to ensure that I and my family will be okay. 
If I lose my job or if I suffer a serious injury, uh, then, you know, I've already got my backup plans activated and I've got them ready to go. You know, I could find another job or at least I've got income protection. I've got my parents if I need the help from them. Now, don't hear me saying that it's, it's a bad thing to be prepared and to steward your life and time and resources well. That's, that's a good thing. But here's the point. If I pop the bonnet to see the engine that's running, all of these security blankets and backup plans and ways of how you're going to ensure that you still get daily bread of your life, what will I see? Will that engine that is driving all of that be a dependence, a reliance on God? that trusts that He will provide, that acknowledges that everything comes from Him because He is God? Or will it be like a Flintstones car with just you and your two legs trying to power everything? The difference between those two is the difference between following the Lord and following Baal. Because putting any false idol, false God in the place of God looks like trusting in it more than Him. And in this scenario, it means trusting ourselves more than God. And you see the fruit of that when things go bad, don't you? You blame yourself for not being better at your job or not getting a better job. Your first instinct isn't to pray, but to work out a solution to try and figure out how I'm going to beat this. You drift into a faith that acknowledges God with your lips, but deep down you don't really believe He is good or that He is good to you specifically. And you know, you see the fruit of that when things are going well, don't you? You start to depend on God less and on your abilities more, which shows up in your prayerlessness. Or in prayers that think God only loves you if He answers your prayer the way that you want Him to. It makes you think, well, if God's not going to give me that, I might as well go and get it myself. You become blind to your own faults. You start trusting in earthly security and in earthly measures to keep yourself safe and are shocked when they fail you. In your life, who is God? Because I can tell you now, if it's not the Lord then you're going to find yourself in the same position that the prophets of Baal 
found themselves in. Raving on, crying aloud to all sorts of false hopes and idols to give you some sense of significance, some sense of security, some sense of fulfillment, something, anything. You might not start cutting yourself and have blood gushing out of you as as the prophets of Baal did, but you will start demoting God in your life. And this is why people get so caught up in the prosperity gospel or in the word of faith theology. It's why people get caught up in in pseudo-Christian spiritual movements that use the right language but have drifted so far away from anything that actually resembles Christianity. Because they don't want God Himself. They don't want Him as He is. They want what He can give them. They want Him as they want Him. They're looking for a feeling. They're looking for an experience, an answer, something that they want to hear. As a result, they end up following a false God. And the reality is, just like Baal, the only answer that a false god can give is the same one that Baal gives. Silence. Brothers and sisters, there is Only one God who will answer when we cry out to Him. There is only one God who is not silent. When the darkness surrounds you, when despair starts to overwhelm you, when you feel trapped, when you feel like it's you against the world, when you're exhausted from contending for the faith, when you're discouraged by your own sin and your own failings, there is one to whom you can turn. And only one. And He will never fail you. He will never miss a prayer because he's navel-gazing. He's not on the toilet when you're wading through the sewerage of life. He's not on holidays when you're stressed and overworked and anxious. He's not napping when your prayers seem to go unanswered. He hears you. He knows you. He loves you. And he calls you to follow him and to trust him. Him above all else. But you might ask, how do I know? I'm glad you asked. Just like we saw last week, these these signs aren't exactly happening all the time, are they? I haven't met a single Christian who converted because they saw somebody physically rise from the dead. I also have never met a single Christian who converted because God sent fire and consumed a bull and water and altar. And that's because signs are called signs for a reason. Signs aren't an end in themselves. They didn't happen so that we could open the Bible and point at them and say, wow, look at that. Isn't that amazing that God can do that stuff? Or, hey, wow, look at that. Let's all try and replicate it. 
No. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says that it's an evil generation that seeks a sign, but no sign will be given it in Matthew 12 except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, the purpose of the sign, the purpose of all signs that God gives is to point to him. The purpose of the sign is to show that the Lord, he is God. And centuries later, one of God's prophets would ascend the hill of Golgotha and he would face a multitude that no other prophet before or since would face. And he would perform a sign greater than any prophet before him had performed that would change the world. Jesus would defeat death itself and show us that the Lord, He is God. Which brings us to our third and final point. A bit of poetic license on a well-known verse. One Lord, one fire, one baptism of drought-breaking rain. Let's read from verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah calls everyone in to watch closely and to see what he's doing. He repairs the altar, which technically wasn't the right altar because it wasn't at a temple in Jerusalem. And that's probably why God destroyed the altar later. But Elijah does this to remind the people of Israel who they are. He builds it in the name of the Lord, as verse 32 tells us. Let's read together from verse 31. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seers of seed. Elijah reminds the Israelites of the fact that their nation is all twelve tribes, not two divided kingdoms, and that it was birthed because God spoke to their father, forefather Jacob and gave him the name Israel, which is what the nation would then be called. You see, in all of this, Elijah is calling to mind their history, their identity, who they should be, and how very different it is to who they currently are. And Elijah then stacks the odds against himself by digging a trench that can hold about seven litres or so of water before cutting up the bull and placing it on the wood on top of the altar. He gets 12 people to pour, not 12 people, he gets people to pour 12 jars in total of water over the whole setup and filling the trench with water. Now, this whole time, the people watched closely as Elijah made it impossible for any of this to be a trick. Plenty of people have tried to suggest that, you know, maybe it wasn't really water that he put on, or maybe, you know, maybe there was some way that it was fake. Well, no. This is exactly what happened, and this was the purpose of doing it all. 
There is some symbolism in what Elijah does here, but his key purpose, the whole point of calling the Israelites to watch this was so that they could verify for themselves with their own eyes that everything that was about to happen was not a trick, that it really is the hand of the Lord and that Elijah doesn't have to do a single thing to try and help him. Can you imagine being there? Can you imagine the anticipation after watching for hours, for basically the entire day, these 450 prophets of Baal just cutting and raving and, and gushing blood all over the place with basically no response? And now here comes Elijah, looking as cocky as ever, even daring to pour 12 jars worth of water over the whole thing. Well, let's read what happens from verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Oh Lord, have I skipped something? No, we're good. Oh yeah, no, that's good. That's the end. How's that contrast? Talk about completely different results from completely different methods. 450 prophets ranting and raving and cutting and gushing blood versus one prophet's one simple prayer. Elijah reminds the Israelites of who God is, that He's the God of their ancestors, that He's the God who speaks through His prophets. Look at his prayer in verse 36. In this verse, you can see that that the points one and two of this sermon are actually intertwined. The Lord's honor and his claim to being God are all wrapped up in Elijah's claim to speak for him. Let it be known that the Lord is God and that I am your servant and that you've actually directed me in everything I have just said and done. This is the point of it all. It's not so that God can show off and send fire from the sky. It's so that the people would know that the Lord is God. That you can verify that account. I mean, do you notice that? You just look at the prayer. Can you see anywhere in that where Elijah actually asks God to send fire? No. The whole point, the whole purpose of this act was so that the people would see the Lord is God and the way they would know that is by knowing that Elijah speaks the truth. And they would know that by by the Lord sending fire. 
But that's not the only purpose, is it? What do you do with that? Okay, great. We know that the Lord is God. Okay, great. I know that Jesus is real. I believe that he is who he says he is and that he raised himself from the dead. What do you do with that information? Elijah continues in verse 37. Lord, that this people may know that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. This is the right response of seeing that the Lord is God. This is the reason why the Lord answered Elijah's prayer and consumed not only the sacrifice, but the water and the wood and the stones as well. God's fire consumed the sacrifice at the showdown on Mount Carmel. And on a hill outside of Jerusalem, thousands of years later, the prophet whom all the other prophets anticipated, whom all the other prophets pointed to, whom all the other prophets foreshadowed, he would also stand alone. And he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he faced the burning wrath of God. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for sin. He lived a perfect, sinless life. One that not a single person in history has ever been able to do. And because he did, he was the perfect sacrifice for our sin on the cross. So that by turning from our sin and by turning from the worship of other gods and believing in Jesus as Lord and as Saviour, we might be saved from God's wrath and receive His righteousness in exchange. As Romans 5 reminds us, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. From his burning fire. And yet Jesus wasn't consumed like the stones and the bull and the wood and the water. He wasn't extinguished. On the contrary, he defeated death and now invites us to join with him in his resurrection. The purpose of God's greatest sign in saving sinful people through this act of amazing grace and of incredible love of Jesus on the cross and defeating death three days later was so that you and I would turn our hearts to Him. 
If you haven't done that here this morning, know that this is the reason for Jesus' life. This is the reason for his death. And this is the reason for his resurrection. He came to save a people for himself, to establish his kingdom. And he has done that by calling people like you and me to repent and believe. To turn away from our worship of false idols and false gods and turn to the worship of the true God, the living one. And you know, Jesus had to go to the cross because our sin is deserving of judgment. Verse 40 is another sobering reminder of that. You know, the Bible has many passages that are hard to read. And this is one of them. And many people often shipwreck their faith because they say, you know, I could never believe in a God who sends billions of innocent people to hell. And to be honest... I couldn't either. And I don't. Because such a God isn't the God of the Bible. One of the most crucial moments in my own faith journey was coming to realize and to accept that the Bible doesn't paint human beings as morally neutral creatures who just have to see the signs and then come to a rational conclusion that the Lord is God. As we saw earlier, the Bible makes that very clear that a sign itself isn't just going to suddenly make somebody believe, even if it was fire from heaven. No, the Bible shows that by nature, all of us are the prophets of Baal. We are born in sin. By nature, all of us worship false gods and deserve God's righteous wrath. It is only in God's mercy that anyone could possibly be saved. And such an understanding, even though it's difficult to reckon with, helps us grasp the judgment that the Lord brings upon these prophets of Baal through Elijah. The judgment for their sin came in this moment. But it wasn't just a punishment on them. You see, the purpose was to cleanse the nation of its idolatry, to bring the hearts of the people back to the worship of the Lord. And that was the purpose of the drought, which had been going for three and a half years at this point, which we read about in our first sermon in this series. But with the turning of the people's hearts comes the turning of the drought. The drought's purpose has been achieved. And so God breaks that and he sends the rain. Elijah warns Ahab to go in verse 41, knowing that rain is going to come. And he heads to the top of the mountain to pray. And we know that that's what the action is. Elijah, you know, 1 Kings tells us that Elijah put his head between his knees and it can be hard to understand what he's doing there. But James 5 tells us that he prays. And that's what that action represents. And so as his servant is looking towards the sea again and again, by the seventh time, he sees a tiny little cloud starting to form. But this cloud must be like 
Territorian ones. Because it doesn't take very long for it to go from being a small cloud to being a very big rain. And so Ahab rides home. But also, the hand of the Lord comes on Elijah so that he can outrun the chariot. Supernaturally, perhaps. Most likely. God has broken the drought as the people's hearts have turned to him. Just think about this for a second. Who was the one responsible for bringing the drought on Israel? Who was the one who ended up going after false gods and following his Sidonian wife in her worship of Baal? And who was the one who refused to believe that it was his fault? It was Ahab. And if anybody should have been burned up by fire from heaven or slaughtered alongside the prophets of the Baals, surely it should have been him. And yet, as we see over and over again in Scripture, God is just and He is merciful. The the Apostle Peter would put it this way in his second letter. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You and I don't deserve grace. And yet God freely gives it in Jesus. You and I don't deserve the patience of God. And yet He is patient toward us. He is patient in waiting for us to come to Him and He is patient as we continue to follow Him. Friends, don't waste the patience God shows you in Christ. In love, He calls you to turn your heart towards Him. And to turn your heart towards His Son each and every passing day so that you may know that He is God. And to follow Him. How do you know that the Lord is God? We see Him and His mercy in Jesus. And each of us, when faced with that reality of who he is, must choose. Jesus has gone to the cross. He has taken on the world. He died and was raised for our sin. So that we might turn our hearts toward him. 
For the Lord is God. Will you follow him today?